Welcome to the 39th episode of the Headkick KO Podcast. Today we're doing a breakdown of UFC 265, and there is one fight announcement to talk about after we do that. So those are the only two things we have for today. But obviously, breaking down UFC 265 will take a minute, so we will be here for a while. It was a pretty exciting night. There were a lot of fun fights that I want to talk about, and we are obviously going to start right off with the main event of Derek Lewis versus Surreal Gan. Now, a lot of people were surprised by how well Surreal Gan looked. I was not surprised by much of what happened in that fight. I think if we're looking at the way that this fight could have taken place, I think seeing Surreal Gan, you know, be jab heavy in his attack and throw a lot of leg kicks, I think that was very high on the list of things that um, we were expecting coming in. Now, for me, there were two surprises. The first being I was surprised at how much damage Surreal Gan was doing when he was throwing shots. Um, Jabs and leg kicks both. We already talked about those are both effective. But when you saw that jab land, you would get a reaction out of Derek Lewis. Every time a leg kick land, especially after the first round, every time one landed, you were getting a reaction from Derek Lewis. I wasn't expecting the jabs and the leg kicks to have as much power behind them and have the ability to really chop away a durable guy like Derek Lewis that quickly. It obviously didn't help that Derek Lewis wasn't really doing much defensively against the jab or the leg kicks but you know that happens but the pure power in those shots I was very surprised about and I was surprised about how quickly they kind of wore Derek Lewis down the other thing I was surprised about was that there wasn't a single instance in the three rounds of fight that we saw where Derek or where Derek Lewis even had an opportunity to land a big shot. Surreal Gan never gave him that opportunity. There wasn't a single moment where Derek Lewis could take advantage of Surreal Gan being out of position or being overextended. And he never got that opportunity. And, you know, Surreal Gan was able to finish that fight before he put himself in any bad positions. And I think that just goes to show how high level Surreal Gan is, especially in his footwork and movement. Everyone knew that he was high level, but to not make a single mistake throughout the whole fight, because if you make that mistake, Derek Lewis is going to find it and he's going to connect. I mean, that is something that we've seen from Derek, where the second he gets a chance, he can capitalize on any chance he gets. He was never given one. And that is an improvement, even on what we've seen from Surreal Gan in recent fights, I remember in Volkov, in the Volkov fight, there was a there was a a spot where Gan really overextended and got hit with a check hook. There were a couple other times he got overextended and, and Volkov had a chance to counter. And a lot of people were saying if you know if he does that against Derek Lewis or Francis Ngannou, he will get KO'd. But he never made those mistakes, and good on him for that. So well, I wasn't overly surprised at a lot of the things he did. Like I said, the two big surprises for me were just him. The amount of damage that he was able to do with the leg kick and the jab. And then obviously his um, his ability to not make a single mistake throughout the entire fight was also very impressive and not something I expected coming in. And... Surreal Gan is, I think what he proved in this fight was that Surreal Gan is probably the toughest fight for Francis Ngannou, in my opinion. And I think Derek Lewis is a great litmus test to fighting Francis Ngannou. Now, um, they obviously, Derek Lewis and Francis Ngannou, aren't the same fighter. And everybody knows that. Well, they are two big power punchers, the big spot where there are two major differences are in the activity. 
and we saw that firsthand here in this fight. Derek Lewis was very inactive, which um, that is something that I guess is a trend in his career. There has been fights where he's been more active. But when we saw Derek Lewis in an active state in this fight, he was throwing switch kicks, flying knees. He was really getting wild. But, you know, Derek Lewis's form of activity isn't, you know, throwing a jab out there and throwing some one-twos, throwing some shots to the body. That's just not the way he fights, and that's fine. That's just one of the differences between Francis Ngannou and Derek Lewis. But the one thing that I saw from Surreal Gan was that he was comfortable moving forward and he was comfortable putting himself in a position where, hey, there's a chance Derek Lewis can counter. Well, like I said earlier, he never put himself in a bad position, but even if you're not in a bad position, you still have the opportunity to be countered. He's in textbook textbook positions. That doesn't mean Derek Lewis can't throw back. You know what I mean? There were times where Derek Lewis did throw some heavy, heavy shots, especially in that third round right before the finish. In the last minute of that fight, we saw Derek Lewis really let it all go and kind of, I think he knew that he was on his way out, so he wanted to give himself a chance before he went out. And even in those exchanges, Surreal Gan didn't get hit, and he looked very comfortable. The big shots that Derek were throwing never discouraged him from pressuring more in that fight or throwing more in that fight. And I think that is something that is going to trans- transition well into the Francis fight. Anytime you're, he showed he showed comfortability against a very powerful striker with knockout power. I think right now everyone would agree that Derek Lewis and Francis Ngannou are probably the top two in terms of knockout threats in, you know, pound for pound, probably the whole UFC, and definitely in heavyweight. So his ability to show the comf- his the fact that he showed the comfortability that he it can go in there against Francis and he's going to be willing to throw and he's going to be willing to pressure Francis. I think those are two things that are going to bode very well for him in that fight. And I am very interested in that fight with Francis. Um, I'm not ready to pick a winner. I am I'm undecided at this point. I still lean Francis, but um, Derek, or excuse me, Surreal Gan has a real, real chance, and he may be my pick when it comes time to make a prediction for this fight. But that's going to be a great fight. They have. It sounds like they want to do big things with Francis and Gano and Surreal Gan, but I don't think they're going to be able to get that opportunity. If you watched Dana's post-fight you know, or not, I bet, post-fight press conference, he, you know, was open to going to Paris and he was open to going to Africa. Well, he actually, he seemed more more excited to go to Africa than Paris. But, you know, Dana really seemed like he wanted to do big things with heavyweight and, and make this fight a really big fight, which is great. But unfortunately, it looks like with COVID, we're not going to see those opportunities right away and especially not here in 2021 but that is good to see that Dana thinks highly of both Surreal Ghan and Francis as to where he's willing to push these guys even if the interim belt may make you think otherwise um it still looks like he's ready to push Francis versus Surreal Ghan which is very good for both guys I think and the winner is gonna have a good career at heavyweight because those two, I think, might just be in a different league. Obviously, you have Stipe and John Jones, but I think they're, I think they're both in two spots in their career where I don't think that they, I don't think they're going to have as much for the younger heavyweights like Francis and Surreal Gan. I just think that I've seen, I've seen improvements from Francis and Gan in their last two fight or in their most recent fights. And I think those two are both currently improving. While I think Stipe, you know, maybe kind of keeping at the same level. And I think John Jones, it looks like he's declining. And, you know, that is no knock on Stipe or John. I think they're both great fighters. 
but um, that just speaks to how long they've been doing this in the sport. So I think Francis versus Srogan is really going to be an interesting fight that I'm looking forward to, and I know, I know many, many people agree with me on that. And for Derek Lewis, Derek, I don't know how to describe Derek Lewis's performance because in theory, Derek Lewis was going to be patient and he was going to try and land a big shot and that shot never came. So we never, you know, never landed it. And that's, it happens. That's MMA. But there just seemed like there was something off about Derek. You know, he didn't seem like himself, whether that was the pressure of the moment or, or whatever that was. But I think Derek is, I think Derek, unfortunately, is, and I love Derek, so I don't like saying this, but I think he's at a point in his career where he is really going to struggle against some of these top heavyweights. Um, he has, you know, holes in his game, and he just seems to not give his best performances when they are needed, like like this fight against Cyril Ghan, like his fight against um, DC, unfortunately. But I think he's going to be a, be a force in this division for a long time. He just might not be that number one or number two guy. He, he It looks like he could consistently stay around that three, four, and five spot. Even in the Curtis Blades fight, Curtis was looking very good on the feet with Derek before Derek landed that shot. And obviously he was looking for that shot. But that just goes to show that, unfortunately, Derek doesn't look to be that championship caliber like we hoped. And, you know, that happens. But um, what's next for Derek is a very good question. I think we're just going to have to wait this one out, unfortunately. Because right now, with the landscape of the heavyweight division, Derek Lewis, unfortunately, isn't going to have a plethora of opportunities like a fighter coming off a championship fight loss usually does. That is largely due to how this division has been matchmaked, and um, which is okay, that happens. For example, you know, we have behind him in the rankings, we have Curtis Blades, who he has already fought, who is booked against Arsenio Rosenstrike. We have Alexander Volkov, who he has already fought, matched up with Marcin Tabora, who I believe he has already fought. I'm not 100% sure. He hasn't fought Jarzinho, so maybe if Jarzinho beats Curtis Blades, that would be a good fight to make. Um, Shamil, he has also fought him. So, I mean, there there's not a lot of guys in that top 10 at heavyweight that he hasn't either fought or is booked. And some of those guys are booked and are guys he's fought. So, and I don't think, obviously, the one name that I didn't mention is Stipe. And I don't think Stipe's first fight back is going to be a non-championship fight. But if it is, I think Derek Lewis would be the right fight. Um, for that, obviously, unless John Jones is in the picture, when you throw John Jones's name in the picture, that changes things pretty significantly. Now, um, I don't think his name is going to be in the picture anytime soon. I think it eventually will be, but I don't think John is going to have his name in the matchmaking um, thought here for at least the rest of this year. Now, um, another thing, another side note, now that we're matchmaking, um, I think next week's episode, which we don't have a fight card this upcoming Saturday. So I think I might do a special episode here. I got an idea where I just sit down and do a little, do a little matchmaking for each division, kind of top five, top 10, maybe some top 15s, depending on the division and just kind of pair up some unranked or some, excuse me, some, you know, not booked fights and say some fights that I really like. So I'll obviously touch again on the heavyweight division when I do that next week. Um, and we'll obviously touch on every division. And I'll remind you guys about that at the end of this episode as well. But that's just something to think about. And like I said, I think Derek Lewis is in a really bad spot. He's going to have to either wait or hope 
that Stipe comes and uh, saves the day for him. Now, in the co-main event, we had Jose Aldo versus Pedro Munoz. Now, everyone was expecting this to be a great fight, but this fight really felt special to me, and I'm not sure why. It just had a vibe around it um, that I haven't felt in a while, and that is largely due to Jose Aldo. His walkout was absolutely tremendous. When Rihanna hits those speakers, when he walks out, I mean, I think it was largely due to the fact that there were fans, so that kind of changed the energy in the building while he was walking out. And I think that's just something that we haven't experienced in a while. That was a tremendous walkout. And then it just kind of set the stage for Jose Aldo to put on a terrific performance. And that is exactly what he did. Now, it's crazy to me that Jose Aldo is making fight-to-fight improvements at his stage in the game. Because while Jose Aldo is not particularly old, he is 35 or 34, I believe, which you'd expect Aldo to be much older. But his age in combat fight years is crazy. I mentioned earlier about how John Jones and Stipe aren't improving at the moment, and that is okay. That is what you expect out of someone with this with this type of combat sport experience. Now, Jose Aldo, on the other hand, just is still improving. And um, he's playing catch up a little bit in a way because there was a time where he wasn't improving fight to fight and he kind of went on a, on a rough stretch there. But since his move down to bantamweight, we have seen a large amount of improvements from each fight to fight. Now, that rough, rough, rough stretch that I just mentioned, in hindsight... You know, not really that rough of a stretch. I mean, it is, but it's not based off the names. Coming off, you know what? I'll just count them just so we can set the stage here. Coming off one, two, three, four, five, six, seven UFC title defenses. And I don't even know the number of WEC title defenses, but seven UFC title defenses. Probably a similar number in WEC, where he fought the likes of Uriah Favor, Mike Brown, Cub Swanson. Um, so he was fighting no slouches in the WEC, moves to the UFC, seven title defenses, loses to Conor McGregor, which starts, I guess, kind of starts this rough patch. And then he beats Frankie Edgar for the interim belt, then loses to Max Holloway two in a row, then beats Jeremy Stevens and Hanato Moicano, and then he loses to Alexander Volkanovsky, moves to 145, comes down to 135, and loses to Marlon Moraes in a fight where many, many people, including myself, thought that Jose Aldo won, and then he lost to Piotr Jan, and that kind of was an interesting fight, because while it was a close fight at the beginning, Jan really pulled away at the end, and, you know, it kind of put a damper onto all those, you know, recent status. And then he comes back and beats Marlon Vera. So, well, he did lose six out of his last one, two, three, four, five, six out of his last ten coming into this fight. Obviously against big names, um, a move in divisions, a fight he shouldn't have lost. So... People were not as high on Aldo, is what I'm trying to say. All that I all I was trying to do by listing off those accomplishments was just simply to say, Jose Aldo was a le- is a legend, was one of the greatest of all time, is one of the greatest of all time. I see that's the trouble is I always talk about it in past tense. Jose Aldo was at the top of this sport, and then you know he gets on a rough patch, and now he's building himself back up after that rough patch. And he is improving fight to fight. Now, the one thing that I think is the most special out of anything Jose Aldo did last night is his ability to check the calf kick of Pedro Munoz. 
Pedro Munoz is one of the best at kicking the calf. We saw that against Jimmy Rivera. He is an elite calf kicker. Now, right now in MMA, those calf kicks are one of the most dangerous things in the sport. Someone who's good at kicking the calf and kicking the leg can change the complexion of a fight very quickly. See the main event, Derek Lewis versus Surreal Gan. You know, Surreal Gan ended that fight with leg kicks before he ended it with punches. The leg kicks open you up for punches so beautifully. If you don't even, you can get a finish with leg kicks. Now, Jose Aldo was checking so many of these and calf kicks are particularly hard to check because of the low angle they can, they come on. Now, Jose Aldo take, took a totally different approach that I have never seen anyone use when it comes to checking the calf kick. And it's very simple. It's nothing that's incredibly complex, and I didn't even notice it until after the fight when I saw a GIF of the several times of him using this technique. I retweeted that, so if you go to my Twitter at the Headkick KO Podcast, you will see that. Actually, there is no the, so it's just Headkick KO Podcast. Search it. You can find it. It's not hard, and I don't mean to plug my Twitter. I just want you guys to see this clip. And basically, what Aldo is doing is he's doing the typical motion of a calf kick, or a calf chat, excuse me, my apologies, a calf kick block, which is basically turning the shin outside so you hit shin to shin in a way. Um, that's an oversimplification. And that works very, and you slightly raise it as well, pick it up off the ground. That works very well against the high leg kick. Doesn't work as well against the calf kick. But what Aldo was doing was he was doing the same thing to check the kick, but he was pulling that leg back, and he was almost making that front leg even with the back leg. So when Pedro Munoz was kicking, although that was that leg was not out in front, it was kind of in, it was pulled back. Now what that did is that throws off the typical angle that you would see someone hit a calf kick at. So when you're aiming for the spot, and then when these guys are in the middle of a fight, when you throw a kick and miss, your body is still going that way. That leg is still going that way. So it changes the angle. And as you're kicking through, that's, that foot is going to rise when you miss this intended target where you thought the leg was going to be. It's not there. You kick through. It's going to raise. And then Aldo brings the shin back. And then it will connect if it doesn't dodge completely. So it may, Pedro Munoz could miss. And if it did hit Aldo, it was a check. This was a tremendous ch- technique. Please go look at my Twitter. It's not even my tweet. It's something I retweeted. Go look at it so you can really get the full idea of what I'm talking about. But the point that I'm trying to make with this is this shows how much Aldo is evolving as he ages. I mean, this is a technique that I've never seen anyone use, and I could have missed it, and it might have been um, highlighted because it was Aldo. But this is something where you don't see this every day. This is something that is a small wrinkle that he had added into the, his game because it would help him beat Pedro Munoz. And it did that. It did. It helped him beat Pedro Munoz an incredible amount. I don't know how else to say it. In his ability to add that into his game and evolve, and that's an evolution of the sport completely, not even Aldo's game. It's not like a fighter with poor takedown defense evolving his game by adding takedown defense. It's a great fighter who is evolving his game by adding new things that we haven't seen, especially recently. So, and that's just one aspect of how Aldo improved. I mean, when you look at his defensive nature in that fight and how well he did, whether Everything, everything was either blocked or or dodged with with great head movement or, you know, or checked or countered. Everything he did was tremendous. And then in the third round, when he decides, okay, now this is the active round. I've won rounds one and two by a pretty good margin, but on round three, I'm going to pour it on. And then going into round three, Absolutely tremendous. Picks up the activity on Munhos, who is 
you know, pretty tired. And not to mention, this is even better because he worked the body in the first two rounds. So he works the body and then he gets Moonhouse wore down. I'm not going to say Moonhouse was tired because he has great conditioning. But he has Moonhouse wore down. He's bleeding. And then he really starts to go, throws more shots to the body. He starts throwing to the head. And he didn't start the leg kicks really until round three. When round three rolled around, Jose Aldo started kicking the leg of Pedro Moonhouse. And I mean, the first kick that he landed did massive damage. He doesn't need to land very many. I think he might have gotten Pedro Munoz to stumble on the very first leg kick that he landed with. And then I, I believe if I remember correctly, he got a knockdown with a leg kick. And, you know, at that point, it it looks just so hard to be Aldo when he's at that level. But with that being said, Aldo's not the only one at that level, unfortunately. Um, Aldo is fighting, the, that last fight especially with Munoz, he's fighting at a championship level. The problem is, at 135, there are at least five guys fighting at a championship level. Aljo, Piotr Jan, TJ Dillashaw, Dillashaw, Corey Sanhagen, Rob Front, Jose Aldo. That's six, actually. That is six fighters fighting at a championship level. And, you know, how is the UFC going to match make that division in the future? I'm not 100% sure. There's a lot of directions they can go, but it's going to be interesting. If you match anyone in the top six against each other, it's going to be a fun time. I mean, just looking at what we have here, I mean, just random names here. We we just saw Corey Sandhagen, TJ Dillashaw, tremendous fight. Give me Sandhagen Font, great fight. Sandhagen Aldo, great fight. Aldo Font, great fight. Aldo Dillashaw, tremendous fight. Throw in Piotr Jan's name. Jan Sandhagen, great fight. Jan Aldo, great fight. Font Jan, great fight. Font um, Aldo, or I said that, but Font Dillashaw, great fight. Jan Dillashaw, great fight. And that's not even with Aljo in the mix. Um, Regardless, they can matchmake this division anyway, and it's going to be tremendous. Now... I think the way this division gets matchmaked, I'm going to do it here real quick. Um, there's two directions, and it's all based off Aljamain Sterling versus Piotr Jan. So we're going to go with scenario one first. In scenario one, Piotr Jan wins against Aljamain Sterling and is the champ. So let's pretend like that scenario happened, which is probably the most, um, most you know, commonly predicted scenario to happen. So, um, Jan beats Sterling, and then we get Jan versus Dillashaw because Dillashaw is fighting for the belt next regardless. And then that leaves us with Sterling, who at that point, we're not going to get Sterling versus Sandhagen 2 yet. I don't think they use that fight yet. Um, I think we would see Sterling versus Font because Font is probably one fight from a title right now. And he's moving up. He deserves that opportunity. And then if you book Font versus Sterling, that leaves you Sandhagen versus Aldo. And that is a fight. You can match Sandhagen and Aldo with anybody, and I'd love it. But that when you do it against each other, that's another one that just got added to my bucket list of fights I want to see and things I would do very bad things to see that fight. And so... Um, that used to be TJ Dillashaw versus Corey Sanhagen. Now it's Corey Sanhagen versus Jose Aldo. So that shows you how highly I think of Corey Sanhagen. And then if Sterling, which most people don't think this is going to happen, but if Sterling beats Piotr Jan, then um, we're in a situation where this gets a little bit more interesting because in, we would obviously have Sterling versus Dillashaw for the belt. But at that point, I think we have to do Jan versus Sandhagen because Jan losing the belt, you could make the case for the trilogy fight, but I think the UFC would lean Dillashaw getting the next title shot. So I think you have to give Jan against someone at the top of the division 
and that would be Corey Sanhagen, I think, looks the best out of Corey, Rob, and Aldo. So I think we would see Jan versus Sandhagen, and then it leaves us with Font versus Aldo. Those are also two very, very tremendous fights that I want to see. So, like I said, that's the two scenarios that I see most likely happening and how um, the rest of the division plays out after that at 135. And I think the one outsider there is going to be Dominic Cruz. Dominic Cruz might get a shot against Aldo just because of kind of their two guys who started in similar eras. Now they're still in the UFC, and it looks like they want to move Cruz up those rankings. The matchmaking for Cruz has been all over the place. He took a fight with Casey Kenny. We've seen Sean O'Malley rumors. I mean, I've saw people saying Aldo versus Cruz. I saw, you know, some people making that claim. Overall, you know, how they match make Cruz is going to be very interesting. And like I said, I'll give you my take on Cruz specifically next week. Um, I'll go a lot more in depth. But um, Cruz is the guy who I think could break into that top five with his next fight. And then for Pedro Munoz, Pedro Munoz is still an elite guy. And I'd like to see, you know, we're going to see Garbrandt out of these rankings. So I don't think he should slide too much. In fact, I think Pedro Munoz is very underranked right now. He was nine coming into this fight. I think he should be above Frankie Edgar and Marlon Moraes. The eye tests tell me he is better than Edgar and Moraes at the current moment. So um, I think he should move up to six. And I think that both of those names make sense for Pedro Munoz at the current moment. And I think those would all be good fights between Marais, Edgar, and Moonhouse. So I like I like those three kind of going against the, going against each other in a way. Now, moving down the card, we had Michael Chiesa versus Vicente Luque. Now, Vicente Luque is someone who is slept on in this sport, and I will be the first to admit I am at fault of that. I have looked past Vicente Luque, and I have underrated him. So my apologies for that. Not going to do it again. Because, now I'll be honest, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain to you how me watching this fight went. Now, I was at work all day, come home, turn on the fights, kick my feet up, starting to get tired. I'm starting to get tired around Song Yudong and Casey Kenny. I'm tired I'll teach it Torres versus Angela Hill. And I say, all right, last three car, last three fights, the biggest three fights, I'm going to take a quick, quick nap before Tisha Torres, or excuse me, before Chiesa and Luque. You know how that goes. It wasn't a quick nap. Um, set myself an alarm. Didn't put the right time on the alarm. You know, I wake up. The alarm hasn't gone off yet. I wake up, and, you know, Chiesa and Luque are going at it. And I, the time I wake up, I wake up right as Michael Chiesa gets that takedown. So I wake up and I see Michael Chiesa get a takedown, and I'm like, "Oh, all right, this is get your head in the game. Um, we're fighting." And then I'm like, "Okay, Michael Chiesa got gets his takedown. I think I know how this fight's gonna go." And then Michael Chiesa gets the back of Vicente Luque. Now this was really interesting because he never had hooks in. And he never got a body triangle, really. But, um, you know, very interesting as to how that happened. But um, I think that is probably largely of Luque's defense of that back take, which was very impressive. So I'm, like I said, at this point, I'm like 50% awake. And then I see Luque, all of a sudden, he's got him in a darsh choke. So I pretty much, and then obviously Chiesa taps. So I pretty much wake up, and I'm half awake, and I see my, I see Vicente Luque get a darts choke on Michael Chiesa. You know, thought I was dreaming, dude. I was confused, as, pretty confused, and then you know, had some caffeine, and we were all cool for the next two fights. But like I said, I think that just goes to show 
that who really thought Vicente Luque was going to go out there and submit Michael Chiesa? And that just goes to show that Vicente Luque is so dangerous. I mean, if you're willing to chase a submission against Michael Chiesa, my goodness. Most guys, when they fight Michael Chiesa, if they're in that position, they're like, all right, I'm going to give up this submission because I want to be on my feet. They're going to give up on the submission, and they're going to be content with that fight going back on the feet. Not Vicente Luque. He saw an opportunity for a Darce choke. He takes it, and there isn't really much more to say. But that is something that his ability to get that choke, not telegraphed at all. It was there. All of a sudden, it was deep, in a, and Castle was in a bad spot in a hurry. It wasn't like he built to this. It wasn't like he got a takedown, you know, took his back and got a rear naked choke methodically working the hands, you know. That's just not how it happened. He sunk he sunk in sunk in that Darce choke out of nowhere. And that just goes to show how big of a threat he is. Now Luque's in an interesting spot because what's next for Luque? And a lot of people are saying title shot but this welterweight division is so backed up. I mean, you can make the case that Colby versus Usman isn't the fight to make. I'm not going to sit here and argue either way because when I look at who defends, who Usman defends his belt against, I don't look at that as a lens of who is the most deserving. I look at that through the lens of what improves Usman's legacy the most and I think that's the way you should look at all-time great fighters and I think Usman has deserved that level of respect where we look at his title defenses and goes what stands out here what is special you know looking back Masvidal probably shouldn't have got that shot but it helped his legacy tremendously getting that knockout finish and if Usman does it again against Colby and gets that knockout finish, you know, him adding to his legacy is going to be special. Now, that leaves us with the question, where do we go after Usman Covington? You know, if Usman loses that fight, which I don't believe he's going to, most people would agree with me on that. Some people obviously have Colby, and I think Colby's a great fighter. I'm not saying he can't win. I just don't see that happening. So, if Usman wins, that really leaves us with Leon Edwards and Vicente Luque. Luque right now is number six in the rankings. He's going to hop Chiesa at five. Maybe he hops Steven Thompson at six, or excuse me, at four. My bad. But then that puts us in a sticky situation where, hey, Steven Thompson beat Vicente Luque. Um, so how, how much credit can we give Luque when there's someone who beat him in the top five? And I, I do think Vicente Luque has the edge on Wonderboy if they fight today. But still, you can't discredit Wonderboy who put on a great performance against Luque in that fight. So, matchmaking, it puts you in a tough spot for Luque. Because do you do Luque versus Edwards? And then the winner obviously gets a title shot. But you also have Gilbert Burns. So do you do Burns versus Luque? That's not going to happen. They're like best friends. Do you do, you can't do Thompson versus Burns. You can't, you know, it's, are we going to be in a situation where Luque is going to have to take a fight with someone behind him in the rankings just so he can stay active and get another win and propel him to a title shot? Because if he can't fight Burns, and if Leon doesn't want that fight, you know, there's a chance they don't make that fight work out. And there's a chance they just give this title shot to Edwards next. And, you know, maybe we do Luque versus Masvidal. Maybe that's a fight that makes sense in a way. I think Masvidal, you know, might be the biggest winner out of this. Because I think he might move up in the rankings here to number six, you know. Um. I guess that doesn't make him that big of a winner, but you get what I'm saying. You know, we've got Neil Magny at eight. We're not going to see Luke A versus Magny. It's just a really tough division to match make, and I'm not 100% sure 
of the direction that the UFC is going to go. And when you look, even when you look outside of this top, you know, top 10, it doesn't look like there's anyone surging for the top 10 right now. I mean, you've got Li Jingliang, Santiago Pantanibio, Sean Brady, who would have been that name if he could be Kevin Lee, but that fight fell through. So it's just, you know, there's nothing really concrete, solid that makes sense here at welterweight like there is in some other divisions, which, you know, makes it interesting, but also makes it difficult. So we, we'll see how that division takes, um, takes place. And then we had Tisha Torres versus Angela Hill. Now, I was very impressed by Tisha Torres. She looked great in this fight. There isn't really much more for me to say. Um, she did everything she needed to do and more. Um, Angela Hill, well, her record might not be the best tell for how successful she's been in the UFC. Um, getting a win over Angela Hill means a lot just based off the competition that she has been in there with and how well known she is in that division. So Tisha Torres can go several ways here. You know, I think a fight with Nina Nunes makes sense. Michelle Waterson makes a level of sense. Those are the two names. Gadelia, who knows when she's fighting. I'm not even going to throw her name out there. So I'm very interested. I am very, very interested. Um, that division's got a lot of matchmaking go to go still. So she really does have an opportunity to move up high in the rankings if she can, you know, convince the UFC matchmakers that she deserves it. Right now, I believe the only fight we have booked is, let me see here, Marina Rodriguez versus Mackenzie Dern is booked. And I wanted to say Janji Robo was booked against somebody, but I don't remember the name. We'll see if I can find that. But regardless, the remainder of this division really does stay mostly unbooked. So Tisha Torres really has an open plate here where she can, you know, she's got options. She's got options. And, you know, that that is true for Angela Hill as well. Even though she lost, she's still got options. Oh, it's Amanda Hibas versus Janji Robot. I remember that now. Hibas versus Torres wasn't looking like a likely matchup anyways. Um, I think the UFC should go Angela Hill versus Amanda Lemos. I think, uh, well, Lemos needs a big fight. I think Angela Hill is a good introduction to the rankings. And uh, that gives her a good name if she can go out there and win. So Angela Hill versus Amanda Lemos is the fight that I'm thinking next. And then Song Yidong versus Casey Kenny. This fight goes to show the depth at bantamweight. My goodness, these two dudes were quick, throwing shots. I agree with Song Yidong by decision here. Um, don't know why Casey Kenny is, was protesting that win so much. Um, I had Song Yidong. And I think this fight really hurt Dominic Cruz. His win against Casey Kenny isn't aging that well. But Song Yudong looks like he's going to be, you know, he, right now he's just outside those 135 rankings. Maybe he breaks in the rankings. Maybe not. Probably not. Um, but Song Yudong, there's some very good options for him. 135 is similar to 155 right now. And 145 where even if someone doesn't have a ranking next to their name, that doesn't mean it's not a fight that can advance you in your career, and especially not against a tremendous fighter. For example, Sean O'Malley, not ranked, can do a lot for your career. Um, several other guys in that division as well with similar um, credentials. So, moving to the prelims, Bobby Green versus Rafael Vizid. Absolutely tremendous. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely tremendous. That's all I really have to say. I mean, that was just... I, just kidding. I have a lot more to say. That was great television. That was great television. 
I'm thinking back on it now. I can barely form a sentence because in my head, I've got replays of Bobby Green in the third round. That was a tremendous third round by Bobby Green. It was a fight before that, but Bobby Green made it a war. And I was really impressed by Fazeev because he showed us everything that we thought Fazeev was. He showed us someone who was a tremendous Muay Thai striker, and he, I love his kicks. The power that he throws into a body kick is beautiful to watch. Absolutely love it. His combos, beautiful to watch. Absolutely love it. Now, Fazeev, the biggest thing I saw from him was the heart in the third round. In the third round, he was looking a little tired, right? But that'll happen because of his style of fighting and the pace they were fighting at. And Bobby Green brought it to him. A lot of guys don't make it out of that third round. And I love to see someone like Fazeev, who is that talented, have the toughness and heart to go with that. I think that is something that is absolutely needed at 155 pounds. You can't just be talented. You need the mental aspect. You need the heart. You need the the cardio that might have been a little lacking, but he showed, you know, similar to Justin Gaethje in a way, where Justin Gaethje isn't the guy who in the fifth round is going to, you know, Justin Gaethje in his younger career. Um, this isn't as true now, but like the fight against Michael Johnson, for example, where Justin Gaethje was dead tired, but there's no quit in him. You know, Justin Gaethje, well, he does, you know, people always say Justin Gaethje has great cardio. Is it not the cardio? It's the things that go along with the cardio. You know, Justin Gaethje could be five seconds away from passing out because he's that tired, but he's going to throw shots for the last five seconds. And that is something that I saw from Fazeev, that heart, maybe not at the same level as Justin Gaethje in that aspect, but um, impressive nonetheless. And I'm excited for his trajectory of his career. He might break into the rankings at 155. I think he was really close to getting a ranked fight before this fight. Um, So he might even break in the rankings on Tuesday when they drop. Moises obviously lost his last fight. So I think Moises is on the hot seat at 15. I just think the UFC is probably looking for the right guy to slide in the rankings. Um, Kevin Lee, he's going to drop out eventually. He's moving to 170. So also, can we drop fighters out of the rankings when they you know, accept the fight in a different weight class as a permanent move? For example, Cody Garbrandt booked to fight Kaikara France. Hey, you know we don't need him number six in the bantamweight rankings anymore. Kevin Lee has been trying to fight Sean Brady at 170 for the last three months. Hey, we don't need him in the 155 rankings anymore. You know what I'm saying? Um, but another thing, Bobby Green is much better than I thought he was. This fight, I saw a question was, is Hafdel Fazeev overrated or is Bobby Green underrated? The answer is Bobby Green is underrated. And... You know, I always thought of Bobby Green as someone who was a top-tier talent, and he was in that second category of fighter that I often, often refer to at 155, where you have the ranked guys, and then you have the tremendous fighters who just aren't ranked because there's no room for them. And in my mind, Bobby Green has always been one of those guys, as was Fazeev, but Bobby Green went in there and just... He looked like he was, you know, I thought I was watching Nate Diaz for the half the fight. I mean, my goodness. Um, Bobby Green is someone who is going to make waves at 155. It, he might never get ranked. He might stay in that 15 to 20 to 25 range. But he's going to be fighting talented guys every single fight. And we're going to see more performances like that. A lot of heart. A lot of effort. Absolutely love it. Bobby Green, love the guy. And then we're going to skip around to, I believe this is the last fight I'm going to talk about. Yep. The last fight on the docket for today. We've got Manel Cape versus Oday Osborne. It was about time Manel Cape, who was a rising champ, came in and did something impressive in the UFC. He gets a flying knee KO against Ode Osborne. Now, I still really like Ode Osborne. I like both these guys coming in. And 
Manel Cape finally, 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 I did something that, you know, proved he was a UFC fighter. You watch some of his last two fights, you're like, is this guy a UFC fighter? Does he deserve to be here? He proved he deserves to be here. So, um, Manel Cape probably saved a spot in the UFC, has got to make weight, obviously. We've got to, got to, got to, got to, got to make weight. Uh, there's no way around it, but I don't think, you know, this doesn't look like it's something that is a weekly issue or a, a issue every time he fights. Um, so hopefully we don't have to deal with that anymore. And there's currently a bug flying around. And I caught it and let it go. Tremendous way to end the podcast with a bug flying in my face. Now, actually, last thing I want to talk about, we had Edmund Chabazian versus Nazadurin Imovov booked for UFC 268 November 6th. I was really surprised Shabazian isn't getting a ranked guy just because that's kind of looked to be the way that they've tried to push Shabazian. But regardless, I think this is probably a good fight. Someone who Shabazian has a better chance against and because he's still young and improving. Really like that fight. Good addition to UFC 268. Unknown where we're putting that. Don't know if it's a main card. Don't know if it's a prelim. We'll find out later um, depending on what other fights get booked for that card. Like I said, there was no UFC card this Saturday. I still want to do an episode. So I think right now what I'm going to do is I'm going to match make all divisions. Just give my thoughts on what fights I'd like to see. I think that's what I'm going to do. Um, I think that would be a fun little um, switch up. And I will discuss any other news that comes up this week. Um, who knows? It's probably going to be a dead week because Dana said he was on vacation in the post-fight press conference. So I don't even think there's going to be that much news dropping unless I've got some stuff that's already done that they still got to roll out, which I absolutely doubt based off the fights that we saw um, dropped last week that I talked about on the UFC 265 preview episode. So if you missed that, even if you don't want to watch the preview section of it, because obviously there's no reason to watch a preview for fights that have already happened, you can just skip forward, watch me talk about the fights that were booked. There were like 10 fights that were booked that I talked about with some high-profile guys. So you can go back, watch that if you would like. Um, so like I said, we'll talk about news and some fight booking next week. Um, if there's a bunch of news, I'm not going to talk about the fight bookings. Uh, we're just going to go based off the amount of news we have. So you're just going to have to wait till next week to find out. But you've got an idea now. And hey, if you are this deep into this podcast episode. You should probably just subscribe, right? I mean, if you watch 45 minutes at least of me talking, you might as well just subscribe because you obviously like what you're hearing. Maybe not. Maybe you're a hater and just like to think I sound like an idiot and you like hearing me talk like an idiot. Who knows? Either way, subscribe because you like it either way. So, Thank you for watching this episode of the Head Kick KO Podcast. And please come back next week and have a good day.